And it is Jesus who makes this a glorious day. Welcome to this morning's broadcast. Glad you could join us. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4, verse 1. Today, Pastor Elliot ministers from this verse, Colossians chapter 4, verse 1, which tells us what God's newness in Christian employers look like namely justice and fairness we are clearly called to be new and improved not old and worse and now pastor robert elliott new and improved christian employers chapter 1 verse 4 calls these people masters because back then again there was human slavery and if you were a slave then you had a human master and some of those human masters were Christians, followers of Jesus. And what we see taught to these people in history has something to say to us if we are Christian employers, if we employ others who are either Christian or non-Christian in our work, and we're the boss. And the point here is that new and improved employers demonstrate justice and impartiality as they deal with their workers. New and improved employers demonstrate justice and impartiality as they deal with their workers. See verse 1, chapter 4. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness. Justice and fairness. Knowing that you too have a master in heaven. You're a Christian boss. You want God to treat you with justice and fairness. Then you treat your employees with justice and fairness. Of course, justice was alien to being a New Testament slave. There was no justice. There were no rights in the Roman Empire, especially under the severe hand of that economic engine called Rome. But in contrast, of course, today, thankfully, uh, justice is clearly a societal value in America and in the free world. Going back to Rome, impartiality was never a part of owning a slave either. By definition, slave owners were partial people. They believed that they were over their slaves, more important in society than their slaves. But today, thank God, we are called to impartiality, both by the laws of our land, but also more highly by the laws of God. We are to be impartial to people. We are to treat them with justice and with fairness. But of course, it not always works out that way. In some workplaces, the bosses don't go with that. And the boss's son is the always one who gets ahead. And the taller salesman is always the one who gets the bigger accounts. And the low woman on the totem pole, the one with decent authority, is let go first. The one with the most sick days is fired first. The Christian employee in an environment of non-Christians sometimes gets the dirty jobs and doesn't get the benefit of the doubt, etc., so Christian employers, born-again bosses, are to be new and improved in Christ. They are to be just. They are to be fair. They are to be impartial. Because knowing that you, too, have a master in heaven. You're not the biggest show in town as a boss at a business. God is your boss. And in light of this, Christian employers ought to treat their employees just as they want to be treated by Christ. 
And so I ask any who are Christian bosses, business owners, Christian employers in the sound of my voice, do you owe any of your workers justice? Do you owe any of your workers fairness? Do you owe any of your workers impartiality? Pay up if you do. And so Colossians 3.18 to 4.1 is very practical. It's presented some very everyday differences that Christ as focal point, Christ as identity, and Christ as life makes, whether you are a wife or a husband or a less than grown up child or a father or an employee or an employer. Marketing of products, of course, is interesting. Uh, It's kind of an art as much as a science. And of course, marketing is high stakes because the sale volumes dictate the lifespan of any product. I happen to enjoy snack foods, as it shows. I like cheese nips. Nabisco Box has a banner on their cheese nips that says, New and Improved Cheese Taste. Well, that tells all of us who are thinking at least two things. (laughs) The old cheese nips left a lot to be desired. And if new and improved cheese nips still don't taste good, then forget about buying them anymore because they've done their best, right? We who are new in Christ need to live new in Christ. Because if we don't live new in Christ, then we're the opposite. We're not new and improved. We're old and worse. When a Christian, a born-again Christian, looks no different than the world who does not have Christ, it is old and it is worse. Because the world knows how to hold us to a standard. Years ago, there was a major convention held annually in Washington, D.C. I will not name the group, but you would recognize the name. It was a group of evangelical Christians from all over the country. And once every year, they would flock on Washington, D.C. and have a convention. And do you know what the hotel owners and managers observed? That their in-room sales of porn was never higher in a calendar year than when the evangelicals were in town. That's old and worse. Or Gandhi. There was a time when Gandhi was seriously investigating the claims of Jesus as to whether he could be a follower. And he went to a Christian church. And he was of a caste, uh, an order in society in India, that was not exactly respected. And so he went to walk in the church building, and the usher said, what are you doing? And Gandhi said, I'm coming in to see about the Christian God. And the usher said, we don't want your kind of people around here. That's not new and improved. That's old and worse. Studies show in certain industries in America that keep track of things, largely Christian-owned industries who keep track of things, that many times it is the born-again Christian employees who are most often late, who miss the most days, who do personal work on the job more than the other workers who don't claim Christ. That is old and worse, not new and improved. God is in the business of changing lives. This from the one-year book of church history. 
God is in the business of changing lives. No one is better illustration of this than Augustine. His devout but domineering mother, Monica, wanted above all else for her son to become a Christian. As a boy, Augustine was the exact opposite of what his mother desired him to be. He became an accomplished thief and liar. At the age of 12, Augustine was sent to school. During those school years, he added sexual promiscuity to his catalog of sins. He fathered a son. In spite of his immoral lifestyle, Augustine excelled academically. He became an accomplished Latin scholar and went on to study rhetoric and philosophy, even eventually becoming a teacher of rhetoric. Then came a warm day in July 386 that changed Augustine's life forever. Augustine was at his villa in Milan, and that day a visitor, an African Christian, stopped for a visit. As they talked, the visitor casually picked up a book lying on the table and was surprised to find it was the New Testament epistles written by Paul. That prompted him to relate how he had come to put his faith in Christ. He also told of how two friends of his had decided to join a monastery and how their fiancés had also become Christians, dedicated themselves to virginity. Hearing the story of the two young women committing themselves to chastity pierced Augustine to the core. He suddenly realized that he was depraved and addicted to sex. How would he ever ever be able to escape? Augustine ran out of his house, overcome by his sin. In despair, he fell on the ground and underneath a tree, and there he babbled, how long, how long? Tomorrow and tomorrow, why not now? Why should there not be an end to my uncleanness now? Suddenly, Augustine heard the voice of an unknown little girl singing a song with the simple words, take up and read. To Augustine, these words came as if the voice of God himself Jumping up, Augustine ran and got the book containing the New Testament Pauline epistles, and opening its pages, his eyes fell on Romans 13, verses 13 to 14, which say, we should be decent and true in everything we do so that everyone can approve of our behavior. Don't participate in wild parties and getting drunk or in adultery and immoral living or in fighting and jealousy, but let the Lord Jesus Christ take control of you. And don't think of ways to indulge your desires, end of quote. Augustine later wrote, instantly as I reached the end of this sentence, it was as if the light of peace was poured into my heart and all the shades of doubt faded away. He believed on Jesus Christ alone to be his savior from sin. And as a changed man, Augustine went on to become the bishop in North Africa and the greatest theologian between the Apostle Paul and John Calvin. And so, believer who's listening this morning, let the Lord Jesus Christ take control of you. You've been made new. Now live like it. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things have been made wonderfully new. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the practicality of the scriptures today, and we would desire to be new and improved. Lord, where we have been old and worse, 
we're sorry. We want to be new and improved because you've given us the resources it takes to do that. You've given us the Spirit of God living inside of us permanently. You've given us the Word of God. You've given us, Lord, brothers and sisters in Christ and this church family to give us encouragement and pray for us. And Lord, we want to become more like you. And we want to have that show up in all of our human relationships. And we pray this, eager to see what you'll do as we submit and obey. We pray in Jesus' name and God's family said, Amen. Today's Help for the Hearing segment is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church's Christian Counseling Center. The center is located at 58 Collins Avenue, Nassau, Bahamas. If you would like an appointment or more information, dial 323-7000. That's 323-7000. Or email them at cccbahamas at gmail.com. And now, the Executive Director of the Christian Counseling Center, Pastor Frederick Arnett. Good morning. It's a privilege for me to have in the studio with me this morning, Deborah Arnett. She worked with the Christian Counseling Center for some five years and was very involved with dealing with children and parents, but especially children. And we are blessed to have her today. And uh, she will be sharing uh, a little about uh, parent-children relationship. And uh, one of the questions, Deborah, I would like to ask you this morning is, what is one of the greatest challenges impacting the quality of parent-child relationship in our country today? I think one of the things that has become very apparent in our culture um, is the loss of honor or the losing or dying of honor. Um, to clarify what I'm talking about more specifically is that there appears to be an absence or an atrophying of honor between parents and their children. Um, you would often find within Christian communities or within a church community that teachers, parents will quote Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, that children should obey their parents. Um, and that this is the right thing to do and that they should honor their father and their mother so that they will have a long life. Um, but there are a number of factors that I think inform whether or not a child responds to that suggestion or to that command that the parent or the teacher may be asserting. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I observed through my interactions with adolescents that often some of the factors that atrophy honor include hypocrisy that they observe in their parents' lives. So that would be a conflict between the parents' words and their actions. Mm -hmm. um, it's that attitude, you know, do as I say, not as I do. And a lot of our adolescents perceive that to be deceitful. Um, they find it difficult to honor their parents because they find that they're being asked to live by a standard that the parent, he or herself, him or herself, sorry, are not prepared to live by. Mm -hmm. um, and it is very frustrating to the adolescent. Mm -hmm. um, there's also a lack of integrity. So even if the parent would admit, I don't abide by these things, um, I don't think there's a need to abide by certain um, rules and regulations within the culture, um, it's difficult for a child to honor a parent who's violating rules and regulations that the child may feel 
is vi um, viable, important, or that a child's teacher or grandmother may be encouraging, but the parent is not necessarily supporting. Um, and then within our culture, there are a number of cultural attitudes, um, whether it be by the media, whether it be by personalities within the culture, that mock parenting and that mock parental instruction. So you'll find that a lot of adolescents are struggling with should they engage this parent's in advice, instruction, or should they go with the cultural attitudes? <laughs> and so if their friends are like, oh, your mom's just freaking out, don't worry about her, do your thing, then it's very difficult for that adolescent to engage in healthy um, choices that would promote honoring the parent and living a life of honor. What I'm hearing you say is, number one, the child wants to make sure that the parent is not living a double standard, whereas she tells you what to do, but they themselves are not doing, doing what they are asking you to do. Right. That's one of the many factors that could inform a child's openness to honor. Mm -hmm. um, but I think another factor would be the parent's yeah. absence, and that can be physical absence, but that can also be emotional absence. Right. So you're living with your parents. They do have a standard for you. It appears as if they abide by this standard, but they're not necessarily emotionally invested. Mm -hmm. So it makes it a little bit more difficult for you to buy into that. Um, just because you're kind of feeling like they're just coming into your space, dictating, and then vacating the space. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't feel as if they're pursuing a relationship with you. They're fostering intimacy with you. Um, they're interested in knowing you. Um, a lot of parents will describe their efforts to give their children things, mm -hmm. but they're not describing the effort to give their child themselves. Right. And that is a struggle for a lot of adolescents. Well, you've given me this stuff. I want this stuff, but I still don't have you. Right. Um, and then I often find with parents, there's this attempt to foster honor through acts of fear and power and force. So they lord over their children. And that um, approach is not often efficacious mm -hmm. in promoting a healthy, honoring disposition or attitude in your child. Mm -hmm. Because you find that um, this style can be intimidating for a season, but it can also be off-putting and it can also evoke anger and rage and some children reach a point in their journey where they're not prepared to honor their parents anymore and they don't care if they die in the act of fighting a specific cause or a position or physically um, engaging in an altercation with that parent okay and then finally um, I would suggest another factor that is atrophying honor would be um, the words that the parent is speaking over their children. They're not speaking life. Okay. Um, they're cursing their children. They may not be using expletives, but they are saying a lot of death. death. Yes. Um, articulating a lot of death. You will become nothing. Right. You are nothing. Right. You're just like your father. Right, right. And he's nothing. Okay. Thank you very much. We will continue from here next time. And now, today's personal God story. My name is Camille Patrick Rutherford, and I am 10 years old. Mommy, do those men know Jesus? This was the question I asked Mommy four years ago and the repairmen were coming by the house to do some repairs. In answer to my question, Mommy said, I'm not sure if those men know Jesus. Do you know Jesus? I said, oh yes, ma'am. Then Mommy and Daddy called me in their room and shared the gospel with me. Daddy explained what God did out of his love for me. John 3.16 says it well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I believed that day in what Jesus did for me. I prayed asking 
forgiveness for all the things I did that wasn't right. I asked Jesus to come into my heart and help me to be a good boy. My daddy and mommy also prayed with and for me. We sang together, and I was so happy in my heart. Since I received Jesus into my life, I am not able to do bad things, like not be kind to my sister or brother or take things that don't belong to me before I start feeling really uncomfortable. God doesn't let me rest until I deal with it. I would go to mommy and daddy and let them know what I had done. They would talk to me and pray with me, and I would pray telling Jesus what I had done and ask him to forgive me and help me to please him in my behavior. One of my verses that I have learned at home is my E-verse. Even a child is known by his deeds. Proverbs 20, verse 11. I enjoy getting up in the morning and reading my Bible. I gave a gospel track that I got from church to my grampy. I pray that Jesus saves him. I love Jesus and I am so happy that he loves me and died on the cross for me. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. That's my God story. Thanks for listening. It's time for answers to your questions. We urge you to take a moment and get a pen and paper and take down the references used so that you can do your own study later on. We here at Echoes of Calvary are always excited to receive your letters of support and your questions, which we seek to answer right away and also here on the show. You can send us your letters at eocradio at gmail.com. That's eocradio at gmail.com. Once again, here is Pastor Robert Elliott. I have a question here this morning that uh, centers on Romans chapter 2, verse 7. And uh, that verse reads, To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. Question is, does Romans 2, 7 contradict the teaching of salvation being by grace through faith? No, Romans 2.7 does not contradict salvation being by God's grace through faith in Christ. Rather, Romans 2.7 makes the point that certain outflows of being saved by grace through faith will be seen. Namely, the outflows of persisting in doing good, seeking God's glory, seeking God's honor, seeking immortality. These things are all the DNA, if you will, of the truly redeemed person. It is an earmark of the truly redeemed person, to say it again, that they persist in doing good, that they are seeking God's glory, that they are wanting God's honor, and that they are desirous of immortality, desirous of heaven, desirous of a resurrected body that won't die. Now, in contrast to Romans 2.7, Romans 2.8 gives the DNA of the lost. Romans 2.8 gives the characteristics that are typical of the person who is not yet saved, the person who is unconverted. And listen to Romans 2.8. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness... 
wrath, and indignation. Romans 2.8 is saying that for the lost person without salvation in Christ, wrath and indignation are the destiny unless they repent and trust Jesus for salvation. And that before they would get to wrath and indignation, these people who reject Christ are going to be characterized most often by selfish ambition and disobedience to the truth and uh, giving in to unrighteousness. So Romans 2.7 is not a contradiction to the whole teaching thought of the New Testament book of James. Rather, Romans 2.7 lines up beautifully with the whole point of the New Testament book of James. And what is the point of the New Testament book of James? That saving faith is always accompanied by good works. If you have a true saving faith in Christ, then good works will pop up in your life. That's what James says. And so Romans 2, 7 lines up with that perfectly to read it again. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. Now, looking at the larger flow of Romans chapter 2, verse 7, it serves as a contrast, as a improvement upon the life and the destiny of the moralists who were addressed and mentioned in the earlier verses of Romans 2. Moralists thought themselves to be okay because they did their best to keep religious rules. And they're addressed as how they're going to fall short of being accepted by God in the first six verses of Romans chapter 2. And so, um, because these moralists uh, have not partaken of God's wonderful salvation, which was provided to them in Christ, they are different, inferior to the persons who are being described in Romans 2.7, the key verse of this particular answer, because the truly born again, the truly saved, the truly converted person, the truly right with God person through Jesus Christ, according to Romans 2.7, is the person who perseveres in doing good, seeking for glory of God and the honor of God, who longs for immortality in heaven and eternal life. So to go back, let's circle back to where we started. The question was, does Romans 2.7 contradict the teaching of salvation by grace through faith? The answer is not at all. It just says what should be typical and is typical of the person who is truly saved, namely persevering in doing good, persevering in seeking the glory and honor of God, a desire to be immortal and to have eternal life in heaven. You've been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church, Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship services are at 8 a.m. and 11 a.m. in our sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We encourage you to join us. Feel free to write us at eocradio at gmail.com. That's eocradio at gmail.com or 
P.O. Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And remember, everyone needs a savior. <music>